Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Previously on Three Little Words. It was such a shock, for one thing, such a betrayal that I would never in a thousand years had would have thought that something like this would happen. Just after Thanksgiving 1989, 50-year-old Mick Morse drops a bombshell on his wife Jane at a Spanish hospital. He said, I have AIDS. 25 years ago, the St. Petersburg Times devoted prime newspaper real estate to the Morse family's tragic encounter with AIDS. Times writer Roy Peter Clark spent years reporting the series Three Little Words, which published one short installment per day throughout February 1996. Roy's articles have all been republished at tampabay.com, along with bonus content. It remains the most complicated, the most interesting the most gratifying writing experience and and the most intensive period of learning what it means to be a writer telling an important nonfiction story. Before you began, what was your stance on or your your previous experience with um, homosexuality and and AIDS? You know, kind of what was your starting point? I was a perfectly well-trained homophobe. What do you mean by that? How could I not be? I mean, how could people raised uh, going to Catholic schools for all my life as a young man in the 1950s and 1960s, if you showed any vulnerabilities at all, the guys in your group, you know, would call you names. I don't have to use them now. So that was the culture in which I was raised. Mick Morse was older than I was. So that was the culture in which he was raised. Now, I was a New Yorker growing up in a much more cosmopolitan, if put it that way, kind of uh, environment where there was plenty of prejudice and intolerance, but also many different kinds of, uh, of people. I can't imagine what it was like growing up in Fenville, Michigan. Unlike Roy, I can imagine growing up in rural Michigan. My childhood was just across the state line in northern Ohio, where tractors dot cornfields for miles across a pancake-flat landscape. Today, we'll hear how Mick and Jane's small-town upbringing shaped their marriage and pushed them to travel the world. This is Chapter 2, Over Troubled Waters. So if you're wondering who Mick and Jane are, hit pause and head back. This will make a whole lot more sense after hearing the first episode. From the Tampa Bay Times, you're listening to Three Little Words. I'm Austin Fast. That day in 1989, Three Little Words upended Jane's vision of her 21-year marriage with Mick. Not, I love you, but I have AIDS. What about me, she wonders. I was betrayed. I was 
you know, just devastated. And how could you do this to us? Not just to me, but to your children, to your whole family. And three more little words complicate matters even more. Keep it secret. Secret from mixed colleagues at the American school he leads in Bilbao, Spain. Secret from family in Michigan. And toughest of all, secret from three teenage children, daughters Megan and Aaron, who live with them in Spain, and their son David. I came home for Christmas vacation. Uh, I was already going to school in Florida at Eckerd College. And I um, I forgot my razor. I was 19, 18, 20 years old or something in college. And I, I just do 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 walked over to my parents' bathroom and grabbed a razor that I saw there that was my dad's. And I'm walking back to to shave. And I'm like, Mom, I'm just going to use Dad's razor because I forgot mine at school. I'm an idiot kind of thing. And uh, I've never seen my mom move so fast. And she got into the bathroom and ripped it out of my hands. And I go, Jesus, it's not like Dad has AIDS or anything. Mom, don't be ridiculous. Let me just, I just need a razor. And I whipped around and walked on back and said, yes, he does. Later, I found out that broke her down. Like, she went somewhere and cried. Um, but I was just some stupid college kids needing to shave. <laughs> because that's the story. And, of course, I had no clue. None of us did. But Jane knows. She huddles in the Spanish apartment's other bathroom, weeping. The weight of knowing Mick will die is crushing her. But it's also the weight of a mystery, of not knowing. Is Mick gay? Bisexual? Does he have a secret life? Mick tells Jane he'd gotten it from sex, someone he met at a bar. Jane pleads with him, a man, a woman, she asks, tell me anything. But Mick keeps the secret locked tight. Jane searches her memories from their former life in Michigan, looking for signs. Janie Brandt grew up the tiny rebel of a farming village in southern Michigan, ambitiously named Union City. And it's small enough that everybody in town knew if you were doing something wrong and would go tell your dad because my dad had a Sinclair gas station downtown. And um, yeah, you couldn't get away with too much. At Janie's graduation from Union City High School in 1967, the handsome young middle school principal shakes her hand, saying, Congratulations, da-da-da, and I will be in touch with you. And my girlfriend, Tina, heard that, and she goes, Hmm, that's interesting, Jane. (laughs) Like, I think he's coming on to you or something like that. Well, Tina was right. Before the end of summer, Michael Morse takes Jane to dinner and a play at the Barn Theater. And the funny thing is, I know exactly what I wore. (laughs) I had like a black jumper with a white long sleeve underneath. I love that dress. Mick drives Jane home and leaves her with a modest peck goodnight. She heads off to Central Michigan University that fall, but always looks forward to nights out with Mick on weekends she comes home. My mother was thrilled because... You know, he he was established. He wasn't a kid. Mick is almost 30, more than a decade older than 19-year-old Jane. She'd heard of his near-perfect academic record at the University of Michigan, where he majored in Latin and French, and Mick could play almost anything on the piano. Plus... He kissed pretty well. 
<laughs> there were sparks. There was chemistry there. So you got to have chemistry or it just plain doesn't work. Mick's senior yearbook gives us a peek into his life growing up in Finville, a Bible Belt town just a 15-minute drive from the sand dunes of Saugatuck on Lake Michigan. Saugatuck is the Midwest's province town or Key West, a vacation spot friendly to the LGBTQ plus community. Now, it's a far cry from the party scenes on New York's Fire Island, but a de facto gay bar called the Blue Tempo poured drinks in Saugatuck through the 60s, just as Mick graduated college. Bartender Carl Jennings told his wife and kids he'd make more money at the Blue Tempo, but it was really an escape from life in the closet. Back then, you had to live and lead two lives. You had to be a straight person, if you know, at least appear to be that way. And then... Uh, if you're fortunate enough to find something like Salgatuck, it just felt uh, warming and, and accepting. We don't know if Mick visited Carl's bar as a young man, but if so, Mick's son David knows it would have stayed secret. Growing up in rural Michigan in the 50s, are you kidding me? You're, you're, your ass is thrown in an insane asylum if you have any homosexual tendencies. Michigan's laws in the 60s lumped gay people in with prostitutes, vagrants, and narcotics users. Any bar knowingly serving these groups risked losing its liquor license, or worse. To this day, Michigan's penal code describes same-sex relations as a crime against nature that deserves a 15-year sentence in prison. Now, that won't happen today because a Supreme Court case from Texas invalidated these kinds of laws in 2003. Most states started scratching anti-sodomy laws from their books in the 70s. This is around the same time the American Psychiatric Association stopped classifying homosexuality as a mental disorder. The Texas case took care of the 14 states still holding out. And like a few other states, Michigan just never took the step of officially removing its anti-sodomy law from its legal code. Again, we're talking about a very small a farming community, the times. The times weren't for him. In the 90s, the Morse's older daughter, Megan, kept Mick's 1957 Finville High School yearbook on a bookshelf next to her bed. His senior picture has a lot of writing because he was a major nerd and involved in a lot of activities and sports. Mick was the whiz kid and an all-American jock. He lettered four times in three different sports, football, basketball, and baseball. He was president of the student council and future teachers of America. He sang in the choir and was voted most popular in his class of 34 students. People made comments like, no matter what this guy does, he's going to go far because he's got brains and just a lot of accolades and kudos. Dozens of kids sign off notes in Mick's yearbook with things like your pal and your chum. Girls named Barb, Norma, and Mary Lou leave tender messages while Carol warns Mick to take it easy on the girls at the University of Michigan. In March 1968, less than a year after Jane's high school graduation, Mick pops the question. It's a weekend she's home from Central Michigan University, and Jane says Mick seemed oddly urgent, saying things like, if you don't marry me now, it might not ever happen. Frankly, I wasn't all that interested in going to college. I just didn't know what I wanted to do, really. And back in the day, it was like, you know, you either become a nurse or a teacher and, or get married. 
So, you know, small town USA. And just three months later, June 29th, 1968, Jane's having second thoughts. Fiddling with her long white wedding gown, Jane pulls her friend Karen aside before the ceremony. We sat on my bed and I said, you know, I just don't know if I'm doing the right thing. She said, oh, you're just nervous. You get those nervous things. And I've often looked back on that conversation. You know, was there something in the back of my mind that was saying, maybe you shouldn't do this, Jane? You know, you're you're young. There's, you know, other things to do. And if I'd known then what I know now. <laughs> of course, everybody can say that, I think. Jane pushes her hesitation away and Mick slips a smoky topaz oval on her finger. They share a passionate honeymoon, first in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where Mick had gone to college, and then a road trip south to Gatlinburg, Tennessee. That third night, Jane feels a change. Mick wants only to read and to sleep. They're supposed to be madly in love, newlyweds discovering each other for the first time. But Mick seems disconnected. I thought, oh my God, there's something wrong with me. And I would say... In general, it was good. But then again, hindsight is, you know, wonderful. Because when you look back, there's a lot of, um, oh, I don't know. I think I initiated probably 90% of the sex. But then again, you've got three kids that you're running after, taking care of. And David was off and running from the minute he popped out. (laughs) But, uh, you know, you you do your day-to-day things. We traveled a lot. And I would say it's only been recent. I, I, I do think that he loved me. But it's taken a long time to kind of really feel that. Really feel that. The night David was born in midsummer 1971, Mick was in the hospital himself with a heart issue. His doctor had to release him from one hospital to meet his son at another. Jane checks little David for the right number of fingers and toes. Her journal says they felt very clever to have produced such a delight. The years start to fly by as Jane settles into motherhood at the farmhouse they bought from her parents. She tries her hand at raising horses. Mick cultivates corn, tomatoes, and beans in a huge garden. And somehow, inexplicably, she feels that aching distance from her honeymoon growing. Mick is a wonderful counselor for the kids at Union City Middle School, but somehow she and Mick just don't have much to talk about at home. But he loved his children. There's no doubt about that. He was a great father, and they adored him. And, uh, you know, he, he was crazy about his kids. As David turns three, wearing full cowboy gear at his party, wrestling with his dad and building things with his grandpa, Jane's feeling restless. She loves Union City, but feels suffocated by its blandness. So many of my friends are still there, and they have raised their children there, and they've made good lives, but um, I think I couldn't wait to leave. (laughs) The Morses head overseas when Three Little Words continues after this break.
few of Jane's childhood friends moved to other parts of Michigan, but the Morses set their sights further away. Just for fun, Mick applied for a teaching job at the American school in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, 5,000 miles away in a cultural 180-degree turn from life in their quiet Michigan farmhouse. You must know this song, The Girl from Ipanema. I know. The Girl from Ipanema. I don't, I know Copacabana. I know that song. Ipanema. There's Copacabana and there's Ipanema. Okay. And then there's Liblom. So all along the beach there. Gotcha. She's describing three upscale beachfront neighborhoods in Rio de Janeiro. They line the Atlantic Ocean on the south end at the foot of Mount Corcovado with its famed Christ the Redeemer statue, arms stretched wide in benediction over the city. So even if it's a very swanky place for these people to live. Gotcha. We lived in Leblanc. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to have to do a little bit of research when I get home. The Morses stay in Brazil from 1975 to 1989, with a two-year stint in Germany for Mick to take a promotion. He was principal of the American International School in Dusseldorf. In 1980, an offer for Mick to become high school principal at Escola Americana, the American school in Rio, brings them back to Brazil. Miami to Sao Paulo, and then to Porto Alegre in the south, and then to Rio, where I did uh, about a week's worth of, uh, of reporting. Reporter Roy Peter Clark describes Rio de Janeiro as the polar opposite of the Morse's buttoned-up hometowns back in Michigan. Brazil was a highly, is a highly sexualized culture. You know, she's a, she's a mom. She has three children. She has a life with Mick. But certainly not the, the romantic life, the sex life that she imagined. And yet she's in this place where... The reminders of sexuality and the temptations of sexuality are are everywhere. Here's this little farm girl, basically, thrown into a city of 8 to 15 million, not knowing a soul or the language, nothing. And uh, it was culture shock all the way, but it was also exciting. Carnival is a lot of music, very colorful, costumes that are out of this world. For the locals, it's like play, play, sing, sing, dance, dance, drink, drink. During Carnival, they always had the gay parade. And we all, I mean, it it was a blast. It was so much fun. And, you know, people were great. They just love entertaining and you go down to Copacabana you sit outside at the cafes and stuff and you watch people pass and they come up to you and oh darling how are you and it was just so much fun it was another life you lived in paradise and you knew it David Morris lives in Miami now awash in its Latino influences but after college work took him back to Brazil claro eu Aprendi a falar português com três anos de idade e falo que nem carioca. I said I've learned Portuguese since I was three years old, and I've learned how to speak like a carioca from Rio. He teases his mother for never becoming fluent, but she was knowledgeable enough to be dangerous. My life was pretty much sports, beach, and fun with friends. And that involved everything you could think of growing up in a country like Brazil, very open culturally. 
sex is not viewed as a taboo like it is in this country. Having a body is a natural thing. Another thing David says is no big deal in Brazil is having a beer on the beach as a teenager. In school, though, that's a different story. And we were supposed to collect stuff off the rocks. It was like a oceanography type field trip or something like that. I collected my stuff and I'm like, all right, I'm done. Are we done here? We're done. Okay, I'm going to go grab a beer. We weren't going to get hammered by any means. We're just having a cold one after being out in this hot ocean all day long. David's science teacher is irate. And she walks up to me and goes, what the hell are you doing? Yeah, I I got reprimanded for that pretty badly. (laughs) My mom would yell and scream, and all he had to do was raise an eyebrow and look at me a certain way. And you knew, oh, I screwed up. I've heard of other stories where kids probably should have been kicked out three or four times. And my dad was an educator, but he was also understanding that some of these kids with their background and where they're coming from, they're going to screw up. Uh, give them a chance. Uh, how many times have I heard my father tell me or my sisters that, you know, he loved us. We didn't need to hear it because we never did, but we knew it. Family photos from the 80s clearly show mixed joy as a father, helping David unwrap Christmas presents, adjusting middle child Megan's water wings, and showing younger daughter Aaron how to kick a soccer ball. However, Megan recalls very few displays of affection between her parents during those years in Brazil. I don't even recall them saying I love you to one another doesn't mean it didn't happen. I just don't remember. Mick spends more time reading, napping, traveling. Surrounded by the sensuality of carnival and Brazilian culture, Jane even confronts Mick, insinuating she has plenty of chances to cheat on him. My mom could be a little flirtatious (laughs) with other men. At least that's how I perceived it as I was, what, 10 years old? Because my mom and dad would have these big parties and invite a lot of the school teachers. I remember writing my mom a note the next day, something like, I don't like the way you flirted with Mr. So-and-so, and you really married my father. <laughs> I mean, just she was just a very fun, charismatic woman. Jan and I were just sitting on the couch just you know, playing, you know, nothing, you know, it was nothing, but she didn't like it. And um, she, she wrote me a letter that night. I may even still have that somewhere. But yeah, she, that's my personality. I trust you, Mick would say three more little words, all the more ironic as Jane looks back at her time as a stay at home mom. She builds a vibrant social life to work out her domestic frustrations. The Happy Hand Society, she calls her Thursday afternoon hangouts. David describes it as a bunch of drunk wino women that were fun as hell to hang out with. But, you know, they'd get their masseuse and their nail ladies and they would all drink. I remember one day coming home from school. They were doing the locomotion throughout my apartment. (laughs) Hammered. The, The maid and the nail lady and the massage lady was like, get me out of here. These women are crazy. And they would do good things for the community, too. Like they would go to raise money for the orphanage locally. As Jane distracts herself from her lackluster love life with Mick, whispers about him start spreading through Escola Americana, the American school in Rio. A discreet but openly gay teacher at the school says he's surprised to run into Mick at a termas, a thermal bathhouse where gay men could hang out or have anonymous sex. A game of telephone passes this gossip to a language teacher and then on to a few of Jane and Mick's friends, who only tell Jane years later. 
David remembers one time vividly. He came home showered. Like, why did he come home showered? That was kind of odd. I honestly believe that the day my dad decided to act upon his true feelings of who he wanted to be, I also think he made a conscientious decision not to touch my mom anymore. And that may have driven my mom crazy, right? So I know for a fact that when she moved to Spain, there were some people, you know, hitting up on her. Um, and she seriously thought about it for obvious reasons. I mean, married to your husband, he doesn't touch you for X amount of years. Everybody's human. Escola Americana had just gotten put in a pool. And so a bunch of us went to the pool on, I'm sure it was a weekend, probably a Sunday, kids, parents playing. And um, I was sitting off reading the um, Miami Herald. That's about all you you know could get. And in the Miami Herald, they had this long story about this disease that gay men were getting. And I read it thoroughly. And, okay, we're in Rio pool, it's warm, and all of a sudden I had this cold feeling come over me. I mean, I have thought about it for on and off for a couple years, but then just recently it kind of came back to me that, geez, Jane, maybe you should have listened to your gut or your spirit or your soul then and there, which was a long time ago. Around the time Jane reads those words in the mid-80s, researchers are searching for a cure. Thank you all for coming to this very important news conference, which was called Hastily. A 1986 clinical trial repurposed a shelved cancer drug on AIDS patients. What we are discussing today is the first therapeutic agent, AZT, that seems to hold promise for some AIDS patients. That's Ronald Reagan's Assistant Secretary for Health, Dr. Robert Windham. After he announced this in fall 1986, the Food and Drug Administration approved AZT, or azetothiamidine, in only four months' time. It was one of the fastest approvals ever at the time. It's a step forward, but the New York Times reports AZT causes severe anemia in some people and costs a fortune. Uncertainties remain. Uncertainties about possible toxic effects. Uncertainties about long-term benefits. We do not want to overpromise the thousands of people who now have AIDS. In macho Latino culture of the 80s, homosexuality is both despised and yet somehow more accepted than in the U.S., Married men conflicted about their sexual identity might seek out drag queens for a so-called transitional experience. Reporter Roy Peter Clark finds there's a distinct hierarchy in Brazil. As long as these curious men were the, quote, active partner, some people thought what they were doing didn't qualify as gay. But they had plenty of choice words for the passive partners. And just a warning to listeners, there's some offensive language coming up. Here, Roy reads from his reporter notebook. The word for f- or maracon here in Brazil is viedo, which literally means a deer, a baby deer, because the animal prances around, supposedly. It's a common insult often applied to men who are not gay. In a macho culture, acts that mimic gayness come to the surface. 
men commonly say goodbye with un beso, a kiss, or un umbrezo, a hug. On Roy's reporting trip in Brazil, he learned students sometimes use that homophobic slur behind Mick's back. It always sparked an argument about machismo. How could Mick be gay when he's married to a beautiful woman like Jane? There were some kids, if you will, that were saying, oh, we always knew he was gay. When Dr. Brown stepped down... He was headmaster of the American school. And Mick was hoping to get the job as the headmaster in Rio. And there was a couple who had a following that were very much against. They wouldn't go with anybody else. They'd have to take Mick. You know, he's been here, he knows the language, he knows the families, blah, blah, blah. Well, they went in another direction. And so I've often wondered if somehow that particular couple and maybe some of their friends had known something that we didn't know or I didn't know. Jane stopped short of calling it sabotage. Whatever it was, Escola Americana passed over Mick for this promotion, even with his decade in Rio and a whole year working as acting headmaster. Jane lets her fire and brimstone fly. She usually only comes to the school to check in with her kids' teachers or to deliver her famous chocolate sheet cakes as gifts for the secretaries. But this is too much. She barges into the little administration building and complains to anyone who will listen. Mick is sacrificing his health, working as a high school principal and acting headmaster, she fumes. He'd always looked boyish, younger than his age, but lately he seems worn out. Climbing the steep steps between school buildings takes his breath away. Surely it's the stress from working so hard for this school, Jane argues, to no avail. Mick would become a headmaster, just not in Rio de Janeiro. The American school in Bilbao, on the northern coast of Spain, offers them a chance to move on in 1989. It's 2.30, at the end of the day, before leaving. <laughs> yeah, that was Mick right there. Jane and I are fast-forwarding through a DVD her older daughter Megan gave me. It's 75 minutes of shaky camcorder footage spliced together to help Mick remember Escola Americana as the family heads off to Europe. Mm-hmm. That's, That's him. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought. I mean, he looks, he looks like a principal. Yeah. <laughs> Got the shirt and tie, yeah. short sleeves, because I assume it was pretty, pretty Always. warm there. Yeah, yeah, pretty much most of the time. Rickety school buses chug up a lush hill coated in palm trees. Goodbye. I'm sorry that you're going. A tall woman with a ponytail in a science laboratory wishes Mick well. I hope you and your family adapt well there. Okay. Fifty or so students, obviously in the throes of senioritis, appear on an auditorium stage. A blonde woman tries to corral them through graduation rehearsal. That's Laura Sheepy again. She was in charge of the plays and stuff like that. You just finished A musician plinks out the starting chords of John Lennon's Imagine once, twice, praying these seniors will cooperate and finally get underway. A paper plane soars from center stage. Someone's sneaking animal sounds. And there's Mick. Mm. 
Is that Mick talking? So I can get to your places is Probably. I saw he's he's walking around with a microphone. There he has a microphone. Was David's senior year the same year that you guys went to Spain? Yeah. He graduated in eighty nine and that's when we went to Spain. Jane points out David. He's linked arms with a girl, escorting her down the stage steps. They're all processing offstage, two by two, as Mick oversees the slightly orchestrated bedlam from stage left. David heads straight up the aisle for the camera, yelling, I did it! I did it! We loved Rio, right? We loved the school. We loved the people. Till this day, just fond memories of that school. When I was graduating, you know, I said, Look, let's you and I do something. He played the piano. I sang the song. Do you remember what song? Bridge was? Over Troubled Water. That's uh, of course, that's a classic, dude. Like It was just very emotional as a you know, 17, 18 year old kid leaving everyone that you loved and knew. As David belts out that famous final chorus to Simon and Garfunkel's folk hit, he hears sniffles from the audience from his sisters preparing to leave their friends behind, from his classmates wondering when they'd see each other again, from Mick's colleagues, and most of all, from Jane, worrying as she watches her husband grow frail under the stress and disappointment of missing his expected promotion. Little did she know, but troubled waters lay ahead. On the next episode of Three Little Words... So we're all thinking, yeah, they're, they're getting divorced. I don't know what prompted me to say this, but I said, dad has AIDS. At that time, that was like the worst thing that was going on in the world. Like it was a death sentence back then and nobody really knew much. And it was just, so I just went for the worst possible thing that could happen. I'm telling you this because I think you need to know. Mick is not happy that I am doing this, but your brother has AIDS and he's probably going to pass. And this is what's happening. And his brother got up and said, does anybody want any iced tea? Three Little Words was reported, written, and produced by me, Austin Fast. The original Three Little Words series was conceived and written by Roy Peter Clark in 1996 with editing from Richard Bachman. Podcast script supervision came from Joshua Gillen and Maria Carrillo. Music was provided by Artlist and Shane Ivers of Silverman Sound Studios. Thanks to Michigan Radio and the National Library of Medicine for use of archival audio in this episode. To read the original series online, flip through Roy's reporting archives, and see additional photos and audio content, visit tampabay.com slash three little words. Catch all five episodes of Three Little Words wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like the series, please rate and review us. Thanks for listening. <laughs>